0: the operations pastor here at V61. And I'm here with an amazing small uh, group of people uh, who's making all this possible. We all wanna say a special hello to all of you at home. Um, We love seeing you guys interact as a family there on the new platform. And if this is your first time today with us, uh, a huge, huge welcome. We would love to connect with you. And we're so, so glad you're here. I want to start today by asking some questions. Do you ever read the Old Testament and think, gosh, it seems so, so hostile? There are so many harsh stories, like the story of Elijah against the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, where Elijah is uh, up against in uh, 450 prophets in this epic prophet duel to see which God would show up. The prophets of Baal build their altar, call down their God, and nothing happens. They try harder, wailing, cutting themselves, dancing, and still nothing happens. After hours of trying this, Elijah has a go. Elijah builds his altar, puts puts the sacrifice on it, and then drenches it with buckets and buckets of water. And then he calls down God to come and accept his sacrifice. And instantly, fire falls from the sky, consuming uh, the sacrifice, his altar, unfazed by the water pooled around it. Then Elijah orders the prophets to be, to be seized and then slaughtered. I heard this story for the first time uh, years back, and... I, I felt so pumped, like Dwight in the office seeing a fire truck. Yeah! And then I read that last little tag and thought, ooh, slaughtered. Gosh, really? Another story further back, the story of Korah and his company of chiefs rising up against Moses. Korah and his men essentially want to overthrow Moses and Aaron as the head of the Levites and the priesthood. God ends up splitting open the ground, swallowing them whole, and then releasing fire and plague among the remnant following of Korah. Or maybe something a little less showdown E. What about Uzzah in David's time, who, to keep the Ark of the Covenant from falling from a rolling carriage, reaches out and grabs it and is instantly struck dead. This one really troubled me. I heard this for the first time as a teenager and I just thought it was so innocent. You know, it sounds like something I would do. I mean, who wouldn't reach out and catch the Ark of the Covenant, the holy box of God from falling and crashing? Do you ever think about the character of God, the character of Jesus, and how what we hear about him today fits in with the Old Testament? We hear things like God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that we hear these troubling stories of war and slaughter in the Old Testament. And then we hear Jesus in the New Testament uh, in his teaching saying, love your enemies and to turn the other cheek. Where do these things connect? You might be saying, wow, SP, we're going there today. (laughs) Or maybe you're saying, I thought this series was about Nehemiah. Um, What I would say to that is, no, we're not going to dissect all these troubling stories today. Uh, And what each one of them means. But I am trying to warm you up as we do look to the story of Nehemiah and how it interlinks with God's overarching story that he's telling through the Old Testament, the New Testament, and how it relates to us today. Though I'm also trying to grip your attention so you listen to me for the next 20 minutes. Let's be honest. I'm so passionate about this subject, about the complexity and wonder of God, and a lot of it I don't understand, and a lot of these stories throw me for a loop, but there is beautiful wonder, complexity, imagery that leads up to the simple gospel that God has orchestrated. Could what God was looking for in his people in the Old Testament be the same thing that he's looking for us here in the New Testament? Nehemiah is such a powerful story, a story that paints a mini picture of, a, of the overarching narrative that God is doing in his people and that, uh, how he would one day bring redemption. Let's take a look at the first four chapters of Nehemiah. Our amazing uh, families have read these passages over the past five weeks I'm not going to do it justice, and these passages are really long. So I've written an abridged version of chapters one through four. Um, I would not claim this as the written word of God. It is more like the SP message version, or the SP MSG, if you will. So let's turn to the text, if we can call it that. Chapter one I, Nehemiah, was the cupbearer to the king in Susa. I got word about the ruins of my granddad's hometown and I wept and then prayed to God for my people. One day I showed the king that I was sad and he did the nice British thing and asked me, what's wrong? Or rather, you all right? <laughs> I prayed to God and then said to the king, hey, Mr. King, you're really awesome. I hope you live a long time. Um, There is this one thing on my mind. Could you send me to my granddad's hometown and fund the supplies for me to rebuild its walls? I knew God was with me because the king said yes. I journeyed there and walked around to examine how run down it was. Then I said to all the people, this is pretty embarrassing and not safe. The old king in Susa has our backs too. He, he's given the supplies. So the people said, cool, let's do it. In chapter three, we got to work. One guy went, built one part of the wall, and next to him, another someone else built another part of the wall, and next to him, and next to him. Basically, a lot of different people built the wall next to each other. Now... In chapter 4, Sandy and Toby, some troubled leaders in the, from other nations, did not have nice things to say about our work. So I prayed to God, could you take care of them? I continu- we continued uh, to build with all of our hearts. Uh, Sandy and Toby and the surrounding enemies were getting more and more angry at our work and threatened to attack us. So we prayed to God and posted a guard day and night to meet the threat. More threats and insults came, and I posted people at the most vulnerable spots of the wall, telling them to remember God and fight for your families and one another. We continued to build the wall, workers carrying a brick in one hand and a spear in the other, on the ready to gather and fight wherever needed. I reassured the workers that the Lord would fight for us. We worked all day and guarded all night. When we slept, we slept in our clothes. I hope you could follow that abridged version of the story. I wanna focus on three aspects of this story and I'll try and tie it together here at the end. A lot of this I've, um, of this teaching I've taken from uh, Tim Keller and John Mark Comer, uh, so I wanna give them credit. Um, the three aspects that I want to talk about are uh, motive, symbolism, and application. First, I want to look at Nehemiah's motive from chapters one and two. Viv and Phil spoke on this at the beginning of the series. Nehemiah displays this healthy way of dreaming. Nehemiah was stirred with emotion at the thought of his ancestor's city in ruins, and he prayed and fasted to God in the midst of praying over months the dreams and vision of God had him uh, the 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 dreams and visions that God had for him was birthed and he strategized within the responsibility that God had given him I've been reading um, this book by Jeremy Riddle uh, called the reset it's such a challenging call to worshipers and particularly, worship leaders to return and refocus our attention in worship. Now, in this book, he has the simple but powerful explanation of two types of dreams in our lives. He says there are sanctified dreams and unsanctified dreams, or pure dreams and impure dreams. He says sanctified dreams are birthed out of spiritual adoption. Intimacy with Father God and surrendered connection with the Holy Spirit. Unsanctified dreams are birthed out of the flesh. Spiritual orphanhood and a lack of intimacy, identity and connection with Father God. Nehemiah heard this report of the state of Jerusalem, sat down and cried, then prayed and fasted connecting to God. Chapter 1 shows his prayer, and he is in full awareness of who he is, who God is, and who God's people are. So the development of this dream to rebuild the walls was done out of this place and out of this awareness. As Phil said a few weeks ago, Nehemiah is not just following his fleshly desires, whether that might be stepping into political power or pursuing economic prosperity for himself or his people. He is not just doing the things he wants to do, hoping that God would follow along and bless it. He knows God and God's desire for the walls to be rebuilt. Now, why would God want the walls rebuilt? God's people, the Jewish people, in this time, were surrounded by wicked nations, sold out to idols and pagan gods. And Nehemiah knows for the covenant people of God to stay faithful to him and to defend themselves and the temple of God where his glory dwelt, they needed a wall. And this would reestablish themselves as God's people from exile. I believe this is Nehemiah's motive. This is his sanctified dream from God. Now this mentality of not pursuing selfish agenda was taught to us by Jesus as well. In Mark 10, his disciples are thinking very highly of themselves, trying to one-up each other, and they're even trying to squeeze their way into a throne beside Jesus after this life in heaven. He says, Jesus called them to him and, and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now this is servant leadership, leadership that does not follow his or her own agendas, but follows the dreams and desires God has birthed inside of them. Just like God birthed inside of Nehemiah. The dreams and desires that, of God that will ultimately further his kingdom and build up his people, build up his body. Now what the wall symbolizes is Jesus. Yes, Jesus, the Sunday school answer. Jesus, our salvation. God's people's salvation, the reestablishment of God's people. This is who Jesus is. It's not all, all of who Jesus is. He's a lot more. <laughs> See, what the walls served as, it was an object of salvation. For, for the, the wall served as an object of salvation from the surrounding enemies as well as an object of the reestablishment of God's covenant people from exile. And now Jesus serves as an object of salvation, as an object of the reestablishment of God's covenant people from exile. And he did this by establishing a new covenant through his life of suffering, through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We see this analogy of Jesus, our our salvation, as a wall in the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah is prophesying about the new Jerusalem at the end of the age. Isaiah 26, verse 1 says, At that time we will sing, we have a strong city, salvation city, built and fortified with salvation. Throw wide the gates so good and true people can enter, people with their minds set on you. Isaiah also says in chapter 60, no longer will violence be heard in your land, nor ruin or destruction within your borders, but you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. It's funny because Jesus is our wall of salvation. Um, As he is our wall of salvation, he serves as a metaphorical wall, not an actual physical wall. That's ridiculous. (laughs) He's this wall because he wants his city, his kingdom to be without walls, to be without boundaries. Tabitha mentioned in her preach that Zechariah prophesied that the city of God would be a city without walls, where God's city would be a city of nations. Revelation 7 says people of every tribe and tongue will cry with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. He is our moving, living, breathing wall of salvation. Jesus takes this story of Nehemiah, fulfills it, and expands upon it. And if I can give you a hint, this is what he does with all of the stories in the Old Testament. Another way he fulfills and expands the stories in chapter three I love this. Persons of every type and status built this wall the poor and the property owners the mayors and the villagers the men and their daughters the priests and the temple staff the goldsmith and the merchants they stood side by side to de- to build and defend each other there's this parallel again of the wall as a vessel that united all different types of people to be god's people and how Jesus is the vessel that unites all different types of people to be God's people. Through the cross, Jesus opened up the family to all people, not just the Jewish people. Before the cross, salvation was pretty isolated to those in the family line of Abraham. God made a promise, a covenant to Abraham, that he would bless him and make make him a father of many nations that God would be their God and they would be God's people. Later, God works with Moses to set up the law to deal with the sins of the people, um, giving commandments and specific instructions on how to deal with sin. But Jesus, being of the family of Abraham, came and fulfilled that covenant. He became the sacrifice himself and opened up salvation to all types of people. God looks at this as adoption into the family. Galatians 3, 26 through 29, Paul explains this picture of the promise of Abraham, the law of Moses, and how Jesus came to fulfill it. In 26 through 29, it says, "'For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. "'For as many of you as were baptized into Christ "'have put on Christ.'" There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, no male or female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Paul also speaks to this fulfillment of the promise and the law in Romans 8, which is an epic chapter. Go and read it. In verses 15 through 16, he speaks to the adoption of God, into God's family, saying, we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So I love what God does in this story of Nehemiah and how he one-ups himself in this overarching story that he's telling. This whole narrative of the Old Testament sets up the promise of Abraham, uh, the law given to Moses, the journey of God's people proving overall disobedient and in need of a true savior, one who would come and fulfill the promise and provide an answer for the law. Jesus, the Holy One, is the only one who could do this. And like Paul says in Galatians 3, what we just read, it's by faith in him that we are adopted into the family. Nehemiah is this mini storyline that points to the overarching story of rebuilding, reinstating, and redeeming God's people. Now in chapter 4, I think it paints a really nice picture of applying Faith in God. There's this balance of God's sovereignty and human responsibility that Nehemiah displays and leads from. And this is a big theme in the Bible Uh, God's sovereignty, in which we depend on and look to, but the human responsibility that God gives, involving us to carry out things and, and show ourselves faithful. So with this dream of Nehemiah's given by God to bring about unity and salvation to the city, Nehemiah both prays to God in God's sovereignty and also takes responsibility in which he's given. He holds the balance of both. Nehemiah prays to God, God fight for us, and he puts people in the most vulnerable places of the wall. Chapter 4 says that people worked with a brick in one hand and a spear in the other. He depends on God's sovereignty and acts in alignment with the connection he has with God and the responsibility he's given. Now, what does this look like for us today? Rob spoke two weeks ago, sharing the passage in Ephesians that says, Our battle today is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers and principalities. We as Christians are not in the wars of the Old Testament any longer, but we are in the midst of a war that has been won and the carrying out of the expanding kingdom of God. And this is all done through Jesus, his sovereignty and the responsibility he has given us to go and make disciples of all nations. Now today, I don't want to give you advice. I don't want to give you three things that you forget in two days or fail to do in four. Today, the whole point is about telling you about this one man this incredible Savior that we have, this incredible gospel that's been given to us. Guys, I want to tell you, it's all about faith in him, surrendered faith in him. Faith that looks like trust in him. Faith that looks like allegiance to him. And faith that looks like intimacy with him. We must surrender and put our faith in him. And I believe this is the thing God has been looking for this whole time in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Surrendered faith in him. It was through Abraham's faith that he was counted as righteous. It was the faith that God wanted to see in Moses and the Israelites. And through repentant faith that God, God's people received atonement for their sins in the Old Testament, not just the blood sacrifices. A goat didn't save someone's soul. Surrendered faith alongside it did. David in Psalm 51 captures this, where he's writing in response to his sin with Bathsheba and the killing of her husband Uriah. It says in the Passion Translation, in verse 16, for the source of your pleasure is not in my performance or the sacrifices I might offer to you. The fountain of your pleasure is found in the sacrifice of my shattered heart before you. You will not despise my tenderness as I humbly bow down at your feet. And I think this faith is fueled in prayer and worship, that intimacy with Father God, connection with the Holy Spirit and simply making ourselves available to him. This is what Jesus displayed to us as as his surrendered faith to Father God as he lived and walked on the earth. So for the three things I've talked about, uh, conceiving and, and living uh, Within sanctified and pure dreams, it's done through this surrendered faith. Through intimacy and connection with Father God and making ourselves available. Unity in Christ and unity with, uh, with others is done through intimacy and connection with God and making ourselves available. Balancing God's sovereignty and human responsibility is done through intimacy and connection with God and making ourselves available. My dad would explain this like you're driving a car. God has put you in the driver's seat. He's given you that responsibility and you're moving. Our posture in this life is to be there with our hands on the wheel, but with a light grip. Saying, Jesus, this is the direction I'm headed I give you full permission to redirect me and guide me in the right direction that you wanna take me. I'm gonna keep my hands here on the wheel so I can feel those pulls in the right direction. And so that I can partner and steer my life with you. Keeping that light grip on the wheel is the focus, not a tight controlling one, but a light one. And there is so much freedom in this, guys. Guys, as I say these things, this is not a burden that we come under. This is not a set of rules that we follow. This is the good news. This is the gospel that takes off the burden, not puts them on. This surrender is a laying down of our old self, but it's a step into our identity. It's a step up into our identity with Jesus. This surrender is a laying down of old desires, but it's a step into freedom, wholeness, and new life. It's not on you to take the burden to be perfect and righteous. That's legalism. And it's not on you to save every person on the street, build the nicest community, and redeem the world. This is also a form of legalism that we have to be or do in order to earn the right. Let me say it again. The gospel is that we do not have to be or do anything. It's all on Jesus. It's all on Jesus because he can handle it. The beautiful thing is that he guides us into his righteousness and his purity. The the beautiful thing is that he he guides us into making our ways perfect. He guides us into loving and saving those on the street. He guides us into building the nicest community and redeeming the world. But these are byproducts of our surrendered faith in him. I saw this funny meme the other day. It says, I'm giving up for Lent, full stop. And though it's not what the meme means, um, maybe some of us do need to give up for Lent. Maybe some of us need to surrender to Jesus today. Jesus says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So where are you today? Are you at a tight grip of the wheel? holding on to dreams that you need to surrender? Are you in the place where you need to reevaluate your dependence on God and his sovereignty? Maybe you are apathetic and idle and need God to speak his purpose into you. Or maybe you need to start at a place of salvation. Maybe some of you are feeling this pull today and need to surrender for the first time. If that's you and you want to give your life to Jesus, there's, it sounds kind of silly. There's going to be a little button that pops up in the, in the comments. Um, and this, is, this just provides an opportunity for you to take that step and say, yes, Jesus, I want to accept you fully today. And there's a chance for you to pray for someone after you do that. Your name's not going to pop up if you hit that button. It's between you and God. And if you're in any of these places, I want us to pray. We have a team uh, ready to pray for you, ready to to speak that purpose that God has, that he wants to speak to you. God has so much love for you that he would orchestrate all those things, all these things and, and show his redeeming nature to show his love and his mercy through Jesus. Let's surrender to him today. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.